Chapter Five of Ramona. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Ramona by Helen Hunt Jackson. Chapter Five. The room in which Father Salvierderra always slept when at the Senora Moreno's house was the southeast corner room. It had a window to the south and one to the east. When the first glow of dawn came in the sky, this eastern window was lit up as by a fire. The father was always on watch for it, having usually been at prayer for hours. As the first ray reached the window, he would throw the casement wide open, and standing there with bared head, strike up the melody of the sunrise hymn sung in all devout Mexican families. It was a beautiful custom, not yet wholly abandoned. At the first dawn of light the oldest member of the family arose and began singing some hymn familiar to the household. It was the duty of each person hearing it to immediately rise, or at least sit up in bed, and join in the singing. In a few moments the whole family would be singing, and the joyous sounds pouring out from the house like the music of the birds in the fields at dawn. The hymns were usually invocations to the Virgin or to the Saint of the Day, and the melodies were sweet and simple. On this morning there was another watcher for the dawn besides Father Salvierderra. It was Alessandro, who had been restlessly wandering about since midnight, and had finally seated himself under the willow-trees by the brook, at the spot where he had seen Ramona the evening before. He recollected this custom of the sunrise hymn when he and his band were at the Senora's the last year, and he had chanced then to learn that the father slept in the southeast room. From the spot where he sat he could see the south window of this room. He could also see the low eastern horizon, at which a faint luminous line already showed. The sky was like amber. A few stars still shone faintly in the zenith. There was not a sound. It was one of those rare moments in which one can without difficulty realize the noiseless spinning of the earth through space. Alessandro knew nothing of this. He could not have been made to believe that the earth was moving. He thought the sun was coming up apace, and the earth was standing still. A belief just as grand, just as thrilling so far as all that goes, as the other. Men worshipped the sun long before they found out that it stood still. Not the most reverent astronomer with the mathematics of the heavens at his tongue's end could have had more delight in the wondrous phenomenon of the dawn than did this simple-minded, unlearned man. His eyes wandered from the horizon line of slowly increasing light to the windows of the house, yet dark and still. Which window is hers? Will she open it when the song begins, he thought? Is it on this side of the house? Who can she be? She was not here last year. Saw the saints ever so beautiful a creature. At last came the full red ray across the meadow. Alessandro sprang to his feet. In the next second Father Salvierderra flung up his south window, and leaning out, his cowl thrown off, his thin gray locks streaming back, began in a feeble but not unmelodious voice to sing, 
O beautiful queen, princess of heaven! Before he had finished the second line, a half-dozen voices had joined in, the signora from her room at the west end of the veranda beyond the flowers, Felipe from the adjoining room, Ramona from hers the next, and Margarita and other of the maids already astir in the wings of the house. As the volume of melody swelled, the canaries waked and the finches and the linnets in the veranda roof. The tiles of this roof were laid on bundles of tule reeds, in which the linnets delighted to build their nests. The roof was alive with them, scores and scores, nay hundreds, tame as chickens. Their tiny, shrill twitter was like the tuning of myriads of violins. Singers at dawn from the heavens above people all regions. Gladly we too sing, continued the hymn, the birds corroborating the stanza. Then men's voices joined in, Juan and Luigo and a dozen more, walking slowly up from the sheepfolds. The hymn was a favorite one known to all. "'Come, O sinners, come, and we will sing tender hymns to our refuge,' was the chorus, repeated after each of the five verses of the hymn. Alessandro also knew the hymn well. His father, Chief Pablo, had been the leader of the choir at the San Luis Rey Mission in the last years of its splendor, and had brought away with him much of the old choir music. Some of the books had been written by his own hand on parchment, he not only sang well, but was a good player on the violin. There was not at any of the missions so fine a band of performers on stringed instruments as at San Luis Rey. Father Perry was passionately fond of music, and spared no pains in training all the neophytes under his charge who showed any special talent in that direction. Chief Pablo, after the breaking up of the mission, had settled at Temecula with a small band of his Indians, and endeavored, so far as was in his power, to keep up the old religious services. The music in the little chapel of the Temecula Indians was a surprise to all who heard it. Alessandro had inherited his father's love and talent for music, and knew all the old mission music by heart. This hymn to the beautiful Queen Princess of Heaven was one of his special favorites, and as he heard verse after verse rising, he could not forbear striking in. At the first notes of this rich new voice, Ramona's voice ceased in surprise, and throwing up her window she leaned out, eagerly looking in all directions to see who it could be. Alessandro saw her and sang no more. "'What could it have been? Did I dream it?' thought Ramona, drew in her head, and began to sing again. With the next stanza of the chorus the same rich baritone notes. They seemed to float in under all the rest, and bear them along, as a great wave bears a boat. Ramona had never heard such a voice. Felipe had a good tenor, and she liked to sing with him or to hear him. But this—' This was from another world, this sound. Ramona felt every note of it penetrating her consciousness with a subtle thrill almost like pain. When the hymn ended she listened eagerly, hoping Father Salvierderra would strike up a second hymn, as he often did. But he did not this morning. There was too much to be done. Everybody was in a hurry to be at work. 
windows shut doors opened the sounds of voices from all directions ordering questioning answering began to be heard the sun rose and let a flood of workaday light on the whole place margarita ran and unlocked the chapel door putting up a heartfelt thanksgiving to st francis and the senorita as she saw the snowy altar cloth in its place looking from that distance at least as good as new the indians and the shepherds and laborers of all sorts were coming towards the chapel the senora with her best black silk handkerchief bound tight around her forehead the ends hanging down each side of her face making her look like an assyrian princess was descending the veranda steps felipe at her side and father salvierderra had already entered the chapel before ramona appeared or alessandro stirred from his vantage post of observation at the willows when ramona came out from the door she bore in her hands a high silver urn filled with ferns she had been for many days gathering and hoarding these they were hard to find growing in only one place in a rocky canyon several miles away as she stepped from the veranda to the ground alessandro walked slowly up the garden walk facing her she met his eyes and without knowing why thought that must be the indian who sang as she turned to the right and entered the chapel alessandro followed her hurriedly and knelt on the stones close to the chapel door he would be near when she came out as he looked in at the door he saw her glide up the aisle place the ferns on the reading desk and then kneel down by felipe in front of the altar felipe turned towards her smiling slightly with a look as of secret intelligence ah senor felipe has married she is his wife thought alessandro and a strange pain seized him he did not analyze it hardly knew what it meant he was only twenty-one he had not thought much about women he was a distant cold boy his own people of the temecula village said it had come they believed of learning to read which was always bad chief pablo had not done his son any good by trying to make him like white men if the fathers could have stayed and the life at the mission have gone on why alessandro could have had work to do for the fathers as his father had before him pablo had been father perry's right-hand man at the mission had kept all the accounts about the cattle paid the wages handled thousands of dollars of gold every month but that was in the time of the king it was very different now the americans would not let an indian do anything but plough and sow and herd cattle a man need not read and write to do that even pablo sometimes doubted whether he had done wisely in teaching alessandro all he knew himself pablo was for one of his race wise and far-seeing he perceived the danger threatening his people on all sides father perry before he left the country had said to him pablo your people will be driven like sheep to the slaughter unless you keep them together knit firm bonds between them band them into pueblos make them work and above all keep peace with the whites it is your only chance most strenuously pablo had striven to obey father perry's directions he had set his people the example of constant industry working steadily in his fields and caring well for his herds 
He had built a chapel in his little village, and kept up forms of religious service there. Whenever there were troubles with the whites or rumors of them, he went from house to house, urging, persuading, commanding his people to keep the peace. At one time, when there was an insurrection of some of the Indian tribes farther south, and for a few days it looked as if there would be a general Indian war, he removed the greater part of his band, men, women, and children, driving their flocks and herds with them to Los Angeles, and camped there for several days that they might be identified with the whites in case hostilities became serious. But his labors did not receive the reward that they deserved. With every day that the intercourse between his people and the whites increased, he saw the whites gaining, his people surely losing ground, and his anxieties deepened. The Mexican owner of the Temecula Valley, a friend of Father Perry's and a good friend also of Pablo's, had returned to Mexico in disgust with the state of affairs in California, and was reported to be lying at the point of death. This man's promise to Pablo that he and his people should always live in the valley undisturbed was all the title Pablo had to the village lands. In the days when the promise was given, it was all that was necessary. The lines marking off the Indians' lands were surveyed and put on the map of the estate. No Mexican proprietor ever broke faith with an Indian family or village thus placed on his lands. But Pablo had heard rumors which greatly disquieted him that such pledges and surveyed lines as these were coming to be held as of no value, not binding on purchasers of grants. He was intelligent enough to see that if this were so he and his people were ruined. All these perplexities and fears he confided to Alessandro. Long anxious hours the father and son spent together walking back and forth in the village, or sitting in front of their little adobe house, discussing what could be done. There was always the same ending to the discussion, a long sigh, and, we must wait, we can do nothing. No wonder Alessandro seemed to the more ignorant and thoughtless young men and women of his village a cold and distant lad. He was made old before his time. He was carrying in his heart burdens of which they knew nothing. So long as the wheat-fields came up well, and there was no drought, and the horses and sheep had good pasture in plenty on the hills, the Temecula people could be merry, go day by day to their easy work, play games at sunset, and sleep sound all night. But Alessandro and his father looked beyond— and this was the one great reason why Alessandro had not yet thought about women in way of love, this and also the fact that even the little education he had received was sufficient to raise a slight barrier, of which he was unconsciously aware, between him and the maidens of the village. If a quick warm fancy for any one of them ever stirred in his veins, he found himself soon, he knew not how, cured of it for a dance or a game or a friendly chat, for the trips into the mountains after acorns or to the marshes for grasses and reeds, he was their good comrade, and they were his. But never had the desire to take one of them for his wife entered into Alessandro's mind. The vista of the future for him was filled full by thoughts which left no room for love's dreaming, 
One purpose and one fear filled it, the purpose to be his father's worthy successor, for Pablo was old now and very feeble, the fear that exile and ruin were in store for them all. It was of these things he had been thinking as he walked alone in advance of his men on the previous night when he first saw Ramona kneeling at the brook. Between that moment and the present it seemed to Alessandro that some strange miracle must have happened to him. The purposes and the fears had alike gone. A face replaced them. A vague wonder, pain, joy, he knew not what, filled him so to overflowing that he was bewildered. If he had been what the world calls a civilized man, he would have known instantly, and would have been capable of weighing, analyzing, and reflecting on his sensations at leisure. But he was not a civilized man. He had to bring to bear on his present situation only simple, primitive, uneducated instincts and impulses. If Ramona had been a maiden of his own people or race, he would have drawn near to her as quickly as iron to the magnet. But now, if he had gone so far as to even think of her in such a way, she would have been, to his view, as far removed from him as was the morning star beneath whose radiance he had that morning watched, hoping for sight of her at her window. He did not, however, go so far as to thus think of her even that would have been impossible he only knelt on the stones outside the chapel door mechanically repeating the prayers with the rest waiting for her to reappear he had no doubt now that she was signor felipe's wife all the same he wished to kneel there till she came out that he might see her face again his vista of purpose fear hope had narrowed now down to that just one more sight of her ever so civilized he could hardly have worshipped a woman better the mass seemed to him endlessly long until near the last he forgot to sing then in the closing of the final hymn he suddenly remembered and the clear deep-toned voice pealed out as before like the undertone of a great sea-wave sweeping along Ramona heard the first note and felt again the same thrill. She was as much a musician born as Alessandro himself. As she rose from her knees, she whispered to Felipe, Felipe, do find out which one of those Indians it is has that superb voice. I never heard anything like it. Oh, that is Alessandro, replied Felipe, old Pablo's son. He is a splendid fellow. Don't you recollect his singing two years ago? "'I was not here,' replied Ramona. "'You forget.' "'Ah, yes, so you were away. I had forgotten,' said Felipe. "'Well, he was here. They made him captain of the shearing band, though he was only twenty, and he managed the men splendidly. They saved nearly all their money to carry home, and I never knew them to do such a thing before. Father Salvadera was here, which might have had something to do with it, but I think it was quite as much Alessandro.' He plays the violin beautifully. I hope he has brought it along. He plays the old San Luis Rey music. His father was bandmaster there. Ramona's eyes kindled with pleasure. Does your mother like it to have him play, she asked. Felipe nodded. We'll have him up on the veranda tonight, he said. While this whispered colloquy was going on, the chapel had emptied, the Indians and Mexicans all hurrying out to set about the day's work. 
Alessandro lingered at the doorway as long as he dared, till he was sharply called by Juan Canito, looking back. "'What are you gaping at there, you Alessandro? Hurry now and get your men to work. After waiting till near midsummer for this shearing, we'll make as quick work of it as we can. Have you got your best shearers here?' "'Aye, that I have,' answered Alessandro. "'Not a man of them but can shear his hundred in a day. "'There is not such a band as ours in all San Diego County, "'and we don't turn out the sheep all bleeding, either. "'You'll see scarce a scratch on their sides.' "'Humph!' retorted Juan Khan. "'Tis a poor shearer, indeed, that draws blood to speak of. "'I've sheared many a thousand sheep in my day, "'and never a red stain on the shears.' but the Mexicans have always been famed for good shearers. Juan's invidious emphasis on the word Mexicans did not escape Alessandro. "'And we Indians also,' he answered good-naturedly, betraying no annoyance. "'But as for these Americans, I saw one at work the other day, that man Lomax who settled near Temecula, and upon my faith, Juan Khan, I thought it was a slaughter-pen, and not a shearing.' the poor beasts limped off with the blood running. Juan did not see his way clear at the moment to any fitting rejoinder to this easy assumption on Alessandro's part of the equal superiority of Indians and Mexicans in the sheep-shearing art, so much vexed with another humph he walked away, walked away so fast that he lost the sight of a smile on Alessandro's face which would have vexed him still further. At the sheep-shearing sheds and pens all was stir and bustle. The shearing-shed was a huge caricature of a summer-house, a long, narrow structure, sixty feet long by twenty or thirty wide, all roof and pillars, no walls. The supports, slender, rough posts as far apart as was safe for the upholding of the roof, which was of rough planks, loosely laid from beam to beam. On three sides of this were the sheep-pens filled with sheep and lambs. A few rods away stood the booths in which the shearers' food was to be cooked and the shearers fed. These were mere temporary affairs, roofed only by willow-boughs with the leaves left on. Near these the Indians had already arranged their camp. A hut or two of green boughs had been built, but for the most part they would sleep rolled up in their blankets on the ground. There was a brisk wind, and the gay-coloured wings of the windmill blew furiously round and round, pumping out into the tank below a stream of water so swift and strong that as the men crowded around, wetting and sharpening their knives, they got well splattered, and had much merriment pushing and elbowing each other into the spray. A high four-posted frame stood close to the shed. In this, swung from the four corners, hung one of the great sacking-bags in which the fleeces were to be packed. A big pile of bags lay on the ground at the foot of the posts. Juan Khan eyed them with a chuckle. "'We'll fill more than those before night, Senor Felipe,' he said. He was in his element, Juan Khan, at shearing times. Then came his reward for the somewhat monotonous and stupid year's work. The world held no better feast for his eyes than the sight of a long row of big bales of fleece, tied, stamped with the Moreno brand, ready to be drawn away to the mills. Now there is something substantial, he thought, no chance of wool going amiss in market. If a year's crop were good, Juan's happiness was assured for the next six months. 
If it proved poor, he turned devout immediately and spent the next six months calling on the saints for better luck and redoubling his exertions with the sheep. On one of the posts of the shed, short projecting slats were nailed like half rounds of a ladder. Lightly as a rope walker, Felipe ran up these to the roof and took his stand there, ready to take the fleeces and pack them in the bag as fast as they should be tossed up from below. Luigo, with a big leathern wallet fastened in front of him, filled with five-cent pieces, took his stand in the centre of the shed. The thirty shearers, running into the nearest pen, dragged each his sheep into the shed. In a twinkling of an eye had the creature between his knees, helpless, immovable, and the sharp sound of the shears set in. The sheep-shearing had begun. No rest now, not a second's silence from the bleating, buying, opening and shutting, clicking, sharpening of shears, flying of fleeces through the air to the roof, pressing and stamping them down in the bales, not a second's intermission, except the hour of rest at noon, from sunrise till sunset, till the whole eight thousand of the Signora Moreno's sheep were shorn. It was a dramatic spectacle. As soon as a sheep was shorn, the shearer ran with the fleece in his hand to Luigo, threw it down on a table, received his five-cent piece, dropped it in his pocket, ran to the pen, dragged out another sheep, and in less than five minutes was back again with a second fleece. The shorn sheep, released, bounded off into another pen, where light in the head, no doubt, from being three to five pounds lighter on their legs, they trotted round bewilderedly for a moment, then flung up their heels and capered for joy. It was warm work. The dust from the fleeces and the trampling feet filled the air. As the sun rose higher in the sky, the sweat poured off the men's faces, and Felipe, standing without shelter on the roof, found out very soon that he had by no means yet got back his full strength since the fever. Long before noon, except for sheer pride and for the recollection of Juan Canito's speech, he would have come down and yielded his place to the old man but he was resolved not to give up, and he worked on, though his face was purple and his head throbbing. After the bag of fleeces is half full, the packer stands in it, jumping with his full weight on the wool, as he throws in the fleeces, to compress them as much as possible. When Felipe began to do this, he found that he had indeed overrated his strength. As the first cloud of the sickening dust came up, enveloping his head, choking his breath, he turned suddenly dizzy, and calling faintly, Juan, I am ill, sank helpless down in the wool. He had fainted. At Juan Canito's scream of dismay a great hubbub and outcry arose. All saw instantly what had happened. Felipe's head was hanging limp over the edge of the bag, Juan in vain endeavouring to get sufficient foothold by his side to lift him. One after another the men rushed up the ladder until they were all standing, a helpless, excited crowd, on the roof, one proposing one thing, one another. Only Luigo had had the presence of mind to run to the house for help. The Signora was away from home. She had gone with Father Salvierderra to a friend's house a half-day's journey off. But Ramona was there. Snatching all she could think of in way of restoratives, she came flying back with Luigo, 
followed by every servant of the establishment, all talking, groaning, gesticulating, suggesting, wringing their hands, as disheartening a babble as ever made bad matters worse. Reaching the shed, Ramona looked up at the roof, bewildered. "'Where is he?' she cried. The next instant she saw his head held in Juan Canito's arms just above the edge of the wool-bag. She groaned, "'Oh, how will he ever be lifted out?' "'I will lift him, Signora,' cried Alessandro, coming to the front. "'I am very strong. Do not be afraid. I will bring him safe down.' And swinging himself down the ladder, he ran swiftly to the camp and returned, bringing in his hands blankets. Springing quickly to the roof again, he knotted the blankets firmly together, and tying them at the middle around his waist, threw the ends to his men, telling them to hold him firm.' He spoke in the Indian tongue as he was hurriedly doing this, and Ramona did not at first understand his plan. But when she saw the Indians move a little back from the edge of the roof, holding the blankets firm grasped, while Alessandro stepped out on one of the narrow cross-beams from which the bag swung, she saw what he meant to do. She held her breath. Felipe was a slender man, Alessandro was much heavier, and many inches taller. Still, could any man carry such a burden safely on that narrow beam? Ramona looked away and shut her eyes through the silence which followed. It was only a few moments, but it seemed an eternity before a glad murmur of voices told her that it was done, and looking up she saw Felipe lying on the roof unconscious, his face white, his eyes shut. At this sight all the servants broke out afresh, weeping and wailing, "'He is dead! He is dead!' Ramona stood motionless, her eyes fixed on Felipe's face. She too believed him dead, but her thought was of the Signora. "'He is not dead,' cried Juan Canito, who had thrust his hand under Felipe's shirt. "'He is not dead. It is only a faint.' At this the first tears rolled down Ramona's face. She looked piteously at the ladder up and down which she had seen Alessandro run as if it were an easy indoor staircase. "'If I could only get up there,' she said, looking from one to another. "'I think I can,' and she put one foot on the lower round. "'Holy Virgin!' cried Juan Khan, seeing her movement. "'Senorita, Senorita, do not attempt it. "'It is not too easy for a man. "'You will break your neck. "'He is fast coming to his senses.' "'Alessandro caught the words. "'Spite of all the confusion and terror of the scene, "'his heart heard the word Senorita.' Ramona was not the wife of Felipe or of any man, yet Alessandro recollected that he had addressed her as Signora, and she did not seem surprised. Coming to the front of the group, he said, bending forward, Senorita. There must have been something in the tone which made Ramona start. The simple word could not have done it. Senorita, said Alessandro, it will be nothing to bring Senor Felipe down the ladder. He is in my arms no more than one of the lambs yonder. I will bring him down as soon as he is recovered. He is better here till then. He will very soon be himself again. It was only the heat. Seeing that the expression of anxious distress did not grow less on Ramona's face, he continued in a tone still more earnest, Will not the senorita trust me to bring him safe down? Ramona smiled faintly through her tears. "'Yes,' she said, "'I will trust you. "'You are Alessandro, are you not?' 
"'Yes, senorita,' he answered, greatly surprised. "'I am Alessandro.' End of chapter 5